Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And this is episode 123. And today my guest is Dr. Nick Tiller. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you today? Ah, well, I don't know. See, the issue here is, is this, I love it when this happens because the, uh, the accents here are going to be slightly misleading as to, as to where we're all from. Um, we both sound like British blokes, but I'm not British, and um, although I'm, I'm based in Britain. And uh, you are where? I'm uh, currently Skyping to you from Los Angeles, California, the brilliant. RCLA Medical Center. Yeah, brilliant. I suspect that it's more exciting than where I currently am. <laughs> well, it, it rained yesterday for the first time in a month, and uh, Ooh. <laughs> it's the talk of the town. Yeah, everyone, nobody's, uh, nobody can believe what's going on. Well, what's going to go on is a bit of science today, hopefully. Um, so the, the, the reason why I, I wanted to have this podcast with you, um, and I'm, I'm going to get you to tell us a bit more about you know, who you are and what you're up to, but by way of introducing this, this episode is um, that we and, um, and a whole bunch of others have uh, collaborated in this paper that you are the lead uh, author of, which is the International Society of Sports Nutrition's position stand um, on nutritional considerations for single stage ultra marathon training and racing. And like, <laughs> like most position stands or consensus statements, they're a pretty solid beast. And this, in this case, the irony is not lost in the fact that we are talking about an ultra marathon training and racing and um this paper is uh, quite quite the ultra position stand it's it's a yeah. serious piece of work uh, so my my hat is off to you as being uh, one of the uh, the main guys here that uh, has done huge amounts of work on this so um i know there's lots of other people here that um are worthy of praise but i think it's best that we you know dive straight in with you as as the main man on this particular event um so Nick, I mean, what, how did this, well, okay, we'll get into this in a second. Tell us a bit more about you and where you're at and, you know, what your academic uh, and professional interests are and a bit of background and then we'll jump in. Yeah, sure. So, so I, I come from a sports science background, did my undergraduate in sports science. So over here, it's kinesiology, I say over here in, in the USA, it's kinesiology, but kind of similar, similar topics that are covered. So I did my sports science degree at the University of Hertfordshire just outside North London. I stayed there for a year after that to do my master's, which was focused more in kind of exercise physiology and nutrition. I knew at that point that I wanted to go down that kind of academic pathway. I knew that physiology was my thing and I was fascinated by it. And I became obsessed with working with athletes. I wanted to work on the Olympic performance programs. I began volunteering my time as you kind of have to do to accumulate the experience. I worked at the English Institute of Sport for couple of years on some of their Olympic performance programs, got my bases accreditation with UK Athletics, but then left to go and do my PhD because I realized that I was actually, I was in love with the science. I enjoyed working in elite sport, but actually what I was really passionate about was uh, it wasn't elite performance, it was the science. And I wanted to kind of, uh, I wanted, that's the pathway I wanted to pursue. So I went and did my PhD at Brunel University in West London with Dr. Lee Romer, who's a, who's a very well-respected respiratory physiologist, and worked uh, at a few different places after that, but, but primarily at Sheffield Hallam University in the UK. 
as an associate professor. I was teaching applied physiology there. And it's only been the last couple of months that I've been uh, out here in LA, working at the Lindquist Institute at Harbour UCLA Medical Center, where I'm focusing on research now. And my, I, I guess just for transparency, my research kind of has two domains. I work in clinical respiratory physiology, but I'm adamant to maintain this, this personal and professional interest in ultra-endurance physiology. I've been kind of publishing in that area as well the last couple of years. So you say personal, because I think, this, you know, one of the key things about what I'm trying to do here, and um, uh, I, I won't apologize for constantly saying it, but my whole point here is on this, you know, science to practice. We're always looking at uh, uh, all the evidence that exists out there and questioning that evidence and then unpacking it. Um, to see whether or not there's some translational potential there to apply it into practice. And that's particularly from the perspective of performance nutritionists. Um, although, of course, lots, lots of other related fields, sports science, exercise physiology, et cetera, et cetera, are interested in this. But I'm particularly interested in people that are doing the science, but also have one way or the other, a very applied or practical perspective. Um, and I've talked about this with, you know, many, many people who, who either are working in team settings or they, they may be in a collaborative role where they're in a university on one day and then the other day they're working within the sports team or, um, you know, they are a, a practitioner uh, or they themselves have actually competed at a relatively uh, high level. And, and that gives a unique perspective. You know, we, we were talking offline about a few things and you know, that th th there is no doubt that there's a, a sort of a, a pretty significant increase in the amount of science out there, particularly in our field, although it's obviously sure. pretty small compared to other areas like, you know, biomedical sciences and so on. Sports science is still a, a fairly small field. But, it, you know, it doesn't mean that all of this science is necessarily good quality. We've gotten into that many times in the past. And, and it doesn't mean that it's relevant. And that's the issue is that, there's a lot of science being done on stuff um, and there's propensity to just, you know, throw that science into practice. And I think what we're going to talk about today is quite a good example of this, where there's a whole lot of things involved in ultra endurance events and training. And whilst nutrition is absolutely an important factor, which we're going to talk about today, there, there's a lot of other things. And also some of those things that are deemed important might not be as important as we, as we might, might feel relative to the sort of distractions and issues that that can cause by having you know that focus on that you know obsession if you like which basically we can be as sports scientists or sports nutritionists yeah and, and um, to add to that it's yeah. also ultra endurance sport by by its very nature does breed an obsessive kind of personality the type of people that, that tend to compete in these races yeah are obsessive you sort of have to be obsessive to prepare yourself physically and mentally for these types of events and uh yeah and, and i think and you you said something there that is absolutely relevant is that the nutrition is absolutely critical and we'll talk about you know the fact that everybody who does an ultra endurance event particularly ultra marathon it, i would say if it's over sort of 50 miles or so or, or 50 miles or more you you will experience gastrointestinal problems mm. it's not a matter of if it's when so you've got to be able to manage that from a nutritional perspective but psychologically as well and, I, and i've always said that 90 percent of completing an ultramarathon is in your head There's the psychology aspect is absolutely critical yeah. 
And uh, that's not necessarily, you can train it to a certain extent, but I think you have to have that propensity to, uh, to be, you need that stubbornness, you need that robustness, and you can train that to, a, to an extent, but you sort of also have to just be born with it, I think. You know, there's an interesting point there, actually. I mean, this isn't even, this is, this is just bonus stuff that we're talking about. Yeah, it's tangent. Really, we're really off on a tangent already. You yourself, obviously, have undertaken numerous ultra events. So you, you, you're not just looking at this objectively. You've done it yourself. You know, you've got that qualitative experience, which I feel is incredibly valuable. I also have, um, you know, dabbled a bit with ultras, you know, training. And I've got quite a few extremely high-profile elite ultra endurance um, athletes as clients. So I, I, I've got that perspective and I'm very aware, particularly with integrating with their coaches and medical team and their families and their agents and so on. I mean, oh, it's a bit of a nightmare, but um, you just delved into something that I think is important and we should be mindful of is, is if people feel that they haven't prepared appropriately um, you know, when you're out there running for hours and hours and hours and hours and, hours and days and days and days, you, you do have a bit of time to think about a few things. Mm -hmm. And therein lies a double-edged sword because you can either put too much information into people's heads about, you know, you know all these strategies that they could be doing. Um, and as I, you know, my mantra is you can, but should you? Um, and therein lies some dangerous distractions that exist with, you know, with, with all this science that's available. You know, we, <clears throat> as athletes, as practitioners, as researchers, one way or the other, we are consumers of this information. And it's very easy to think, oh, I should be taking these pills. I should be taking those potions. I should be, you know, uh, uh, fat adapted. I should be going keto, you know, all this stuff. You know, I've, I've heard that, you know, uh, animal protein's terrible for you now, so we should all be vegan and so so, you know, if you're running around and thinking, God, you know, I'm really starting to feel the heat or I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm thirsty. Oh, damn it. I, I should have gone. I should have, you know, prepared better. I think that there's an angle there from a psychological perspective. Um, I have spoken to a few sports psychologists like Professor Andy Lane about all sorts of stuff. And maybe I'll get him on to talk about this particular angle. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, also, uh, just as a sort of a uh, a little warning label is that despite the size of this position stand, there's only so much that we can talk about. Um, and that's a really powerful thing that you have in this paper here is, is that we're looking at the evidence that is available and there has to be a certain amount of it. So just emerging areas, there might, there's just not enough there for us to talk about yet. Um, and, or it doesn't make the cut. So, Anyway, look, let's just bring this, uh, bring this back um, to why this paper, though, Nick? Like, like why? I mean, it, it's a lot of work, just like doing an ultra. What, you know, what, what brought this whole thing about? And, 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 you know, and why did you, you, you go from that idea to actually breaking ground with this, this excellent paper? Okay, so I, I conceived the idea to write a review on physiology and nutrition of ultra marathon about two years ago. I've been a little bit more than that. But it's something that I, about which I'm very passionate. I've been running marathons and ultramarathons for nearly two decades now. And I've run some, some fairly big races. I've completed Marathon Day Saab. I've run a bunch of 100-mile trail races, a number of multi-stage ultramarathons as well. So, some supported, some unsupported. So where you're self-sufficient. So it's something about which I'm very passionate and very personally invested 
and reading the literature at the time there there weren't that there was a couple of, of sort of uh, there were a couple of reviews that have talked about some of the available evidence but they weren't really targeted and weren't very specific to ultramarathon and i thought this is this is something that that needs to be developed and that something that could act as a central resource for the people that are running the races because the number of times that i've met somebody who's an ultramarathon runner and they start asking me all these questions and as, as you said some people are asking me about keto and some people are asking me about protein intake and supplements and hydration and electrolytes and i thought well what if there was a resource available where i could just point people uh, to this resource and they could get the information they needed and at the time there weren't really uh, many reviews out there spe specific to ultramarathon and there still aren't there's lots of stuff on triathlon and ironman and ultra endurance events in general so adventure racing and so forth but this is one of the only reviews that is focused specifically on ultramarathon foot races so i decided to write this review on the on the physiology and nutritional aspects and decided very quickly that this, that's a stupid good topic so I needed to split them up into physiology and nutrition. And then I decided to write something from a, nu a nutritional perspective, but integrate some of the physiological demands. So I wrote this thing and, you know, in, for complete transparency, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a qualified nutritionist. I haven't worked at a high level in, in applied sports nutrition, but it's something about which I have a deep and active interest. So I brought in a very, close friend and uh, colleague of mine, Dr. Justin Roberts from Anglia Ruskin University. And Justin and I go way back. He was my master's supervisor back in the day when I was at the University of Hertfordshire. But since then, we've, we've become good friends. We've, we've done Ironman together. We, we ran the Marathon des Sables together back in 2011. So we've got these sort of uh, personal applied experiences together as well. And he is a very well-qualified, very experienced high sports nutritionist. So I brought him in to kind of check the academic rigor of the paper and just offer his, his knowledge and expertise as a nutritionist. And then it, it kind of just snowballed from there, really. It, it got picked up by the ISSN and they suggested that we write a position stand on this topic and we were more than happy to do that. And, uh, and I guess the rest is history, as they say. The, the other authors uh, came on, yourself included, and we, um, you know, we're so grateful to everyone that contributed to the position stand because, you know, looking at the paper now, it's it transformed so much from from the first draft that was developed, and I think it's the best paper now that it can be because of the input from all of the all of the co-authors. So, you know, I want to, I just want want that to be known that everybody played a very important part in developing this. Yeah, I, I, it is absolutely worth saying that. I mean, these, it, it is amazing how much work has gone into this paper. You know, you, you and Justin, and I mean that that. But the, I mean, you're you're right. There's a lot of people involved in here. But I think, aside from having played my own small role in that, the 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 ability to see what happens in the production of a piece of work like this is, is pretty awe-inspiring, actually. I don't think people truly understand just how hard it is. You also, it reminds me uh, when I was doing my, my own doctorate, you know, that, that there comes that point where, yeah, you just keep working on it and working on it and working on it. And there's a danger of, of going through that process too many times, but also you've got to let it go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, um, there's and, a song in there somewhere, I think. I know, yeah, but no <laughs> one wants to hear me sing, I can assure you, that's not, that, that's not why people are here. Um, but I, I, the reason why I'm mentioning this, and I, I do mention this uh, quite a lot, is that knowledge, you know, is a very fluid thing. You know, yes, there are some things that I'd sort of tried and tested and seem to be the sort of the cement, the foundations of a body of knowledge. But we are in, as I said earlier, in such a young field that it's still very fluid and we're still trying to work stuff out. And, and I'm, I'm saying this because that's the point here of this consensus statement. It's different, you know, it's a very different thing than a primary research paper. You know, there's a, there's a very different focus. Um, it can be a lot more uh, adventurous in many ways in sort of its thoughts and ideas and conclusions. But also it is also a very, usually a very controlled paper um, and is not necessarily particularly real world and we just need to position that carefully which obviously gives you uh, you know a certain amount of difficulty in trying to put a review paper together because on the one hand you're extremely uh, applied you've got that, that actual background of actual, you know performance background but on the other hand what you're trying to do here is put together a very serious and significant review paper together. Um, yeah, and, so, and I guess there, there, are, there are two things just to quickly touch on there. The, the first yeah. thing is that it was, it was challenging from the perspective of uh, collating the research that's available in this area because there isn't a great deal of research. There's more and more emerging now, but a lot of it is there's a lot of case studies. There is a, a lot of uh, uh, very low level research because for the, uh, number one, not a lot of people are running ultramarathon relatively. Again, it's, the, the sport is, is growing progressively and more and more people are, are participating more now than ever, but, but it's still a very, very small percentage of the population who compete in these types of races. So we don't have a big potential sample of participants here, but those people who do want to participate in research, in, in good high quality applied research, uh, it's often very difficult to do that kind of research because a lot of this stuff is field-based. You know, people don't want to give up their time often. They don't want to have muscle biopsies taken. They don't want catheters stuck in various orifices. They, they don't want to spend a year and a half preparing for an event only for it to be potentially compromised by participating in somebody's research study. And that's something that we need to address. So that has to change. But it's also very difficult to transport the, the, you know, the kit that you need out into the field. It's difficult to get people into the labs, especially immediately after an event where, where we want to kind of characterize some of the, the physiological responses. The other thing that I wanted to mention very briefly is that while this is very much an evidence-based nutrition position stand, and we've done our best to categorize the quality, if you like, of the evidence statements that we've made based on the existing literature, it's also, I think it's novel from the perspective of there is, there is some very applied advice in there as well, some very specific targeted advice that you wouldn't necessarily get from another review or a, 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 a similar position stand. And, and it's exactly as you said, because we've got those experiences in running the races and I've seen the physical responses and I... I know what it feels like and I've, I've talked to the athletes and I've seen the practice and I know what works and what doesn't. Uh, not for everybody, 
because the, the key is that everybody is different. And, and there is a certain point where the science kind of, you can do everything that you can to follow the guidelines as much as possible, particularly to mitigate any of the negative health consequences. But there comes a certain point where the science goes out the window and you've just got to do what works for you. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely critical here. And there are several points in the paper where we're giving advice really for which, yes, there, there is evidence, but it's not something that, that would necessarily jump out at you right at the start. So as an example, we, we talk about electrolyte supplementation in the paper, and I'm sure we'll get into the specifics of the recommendations soon. But just as an example, and a lot of races require athletes to take salt tablets, particularly if they're going to be contesting in hot and humid conditions. Now, a lot of athletes will take their electrolyte supplements as an effervescent tablet or as a liquid that is added to water, right? So they'll supplement the water and take the electrolytes that way. Now, that's great, but there are two things to consider there. Number one is that the electrolyte concentration of some of these commercial products are not, not necessarily high enough. So you need electrolytes in greater concentrations than, than what is available commercially. But the other thing is when you treat your water, you change its flavor, you change its taste. Particularly in a long race, particularly when it's hot and humid, the, the water then heats up. So you find that you're drinking this, this warm salt water and it's fine for a couple of hours, but in a race that's four, six, 12, 24 hours, you, you cannot stomach it and you will not drink it. So one of the key bits of advice that we give is consider taking your salt tablets or your electrolytes as a tablet. So you swallow it whole as a capsule and leave your water as untreated as you possibly can, because then you're more likely to drink it. But trying to drink this, this warm, weird tasting salt water for, you know, the best part of two days, it doesn't happen. Inevitably you drink less of it. And that's not something that jumps out in the literature but it's something that we know from having experienced it that is, you know, it's a key bit of advice. Well, that, that's an absolutely brilliant case example of where there is a temptation to do what you read in the paper, mm -hmm. i.e. the electrolyte drink, and then take it out, you know, for hours and hours and hours on end in the desert. And, you know, that qualitative aspect is an important finding. Um, um, so let, anyway, that's brilliant. Thank you for that. All right. Let, let's, we need a few definitions here. I like to have a few definitions because people use, they have phraseology. We love a bit of phraseology in science and, uh, like languages and dialects, even, 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 even in, we're both from, uh, from London one way or the other. And even within London, there's some different dialects and different understandings of what words mean. So I like to do the same thing. So, when we're when we're referring to um, ultra single stage ultra marathon training and racing, you know what does that even mean? What what's a sing what is a single stage event, and um, what do you mean by an ultra marathon? Okay, so as a caveat, there's there's a, there's a point of contention. So there's there's no kind of unanimously agreed upon definition here. So I'm going to do my best on this. So. And, and I agree with you, you've got to define your terms, otherwise logical discourse breaks down. Everyone, we have to be working with the operational definitions on which everyone can agree, so I appreciate that. So an ultramarathon technically is anything that lasts longer than a marathon. So the, so the traditional marathon distance of 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers. Technically, if you do one mile more than that, you've done an ultramarathon. Really, the races will, will be 
upwards of about 30 miles or 35 miles generally and that and a single stage race is a is a race that you do in one go without without appreciably stopping you're going to stop and you're going to rest but it's 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 done in one stage so the clock starts and the clock stops when you cross the line so that would be termed a single a single stage race and the distances of those races as we discussed in the paper could be anything from 30 miles and i'm working in miles rather than kilometers just because that's what i'm used to but it could be anywhere from 30 miles to 50 to 100 miles and you know there are a couple of very extreme examples of races that are 130 or 150 miles in a single stage multi-stage races as the name would suggest are contested over multiple days so you're you are sleeping at least for a couple of hours overnight and that they, they can last anywhere from three days to the, the self-transcendence race that takes place in New York every year is, uh, I think it's 50 days long and you do the equivalent of 50 to 60 miles every day. So it's the 3,100 miles over, over the course of 50 to 60 days. Um, but that's a very, very unique and extreme example. Yeah, and and also the environments vary considerably, don't they? Uh, from mm -hmm. hot to cold to altitude, um, which just makes it all the more difficult for you to have something, you know, on a printed piece of paper that somehow covers all bases. So, you know, you referred earlier to evidence-based and evidence-based nutrition. Um, I, I, I like to champion the concept of evidence-informed um, which takes evidence-based information one step further into a critical thinking process, which is managed by a competent professional. So it is, it is, it is incredibly important for that information to be contextualized, filtered critically, and then contextualized. And that, that again, is where we would bring in potentially some additional skill sets of, say, a clinical dietitian, sport dietitian, a medical physician, or so on, which, again, is not really what we can get into in, in, in all of this. But it doesn't mean that those things aren't relevant. Um, it's just that they are going to be unique and require specialized uh, focus and attention. Um, so what makes, what makes this, this single-stage ultramarathon so special, then, in terms of you know, the, the, the demands on the body over and above um, someone who's just going to, you know, sort of trot out a standard, you know, half marathon or a marathon. Um, and obviously we don't mean one mile over, but I mean, why, why, you know, why is this such a significant thing for someone to actually undertake? Yeah, and I, again, I'm going to focus on the, the physiological perspective yep. here because I'm not a psychologist, but... I suppose that there are a few things to consider. One of the reasons that it's so popular is because it offers people an outlet. For me, the, I started off racing in these types of events because I wanted to challenge myself physically and mentally. And as the years have progressed, it's now less about the, the physical and mental challenge and more about the adventure. It's more about getting out of your comfort zone, out of your everyday life and getting out on the trails, into the mountains, into the desert. And it's a, it's an environment and a situation where you very rarely find yourself. So it's an opportunity to, to escape the, uh, the inanity of everyday life and, and go and do something adventurous. You meet some great people, but you, you do get to test yourself at the same time. So you learn a lot about yourself. From a, from a physical perspective, 
we, we talk about, I don't want to get into the discussion of, of, of nature versus nurture and, and our, and our, and our DNA and what we, what we've evolved to be able to, to sustain. There's absolutely no doubt that we've evolved for, for physical activity. If you look at the human genome, we, we have evolved to be physically active. And if you look at our hunter gatherer, uh, counterparts and there are some hunter-gatherer tribes that are that are still in existence I mean, they've been studied the Hazda tribe for example and they are you know 14 to 15 times more physically active than us and we uh, our DNA has predisposes us to be physically active in order to go and to to gather calories or to go and hunt for them so absolutely we we, we are conditioned and we, we have the genetics to be able to go out and, and exert ourselves physically. And some people would argue that marathon running then, well, that, that should come naturally to us, right? Well, I, what I, and this is my own personal perspective, there's nothing natural about going out and running for 26.2 miles as hard as you can. on Or saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. And when you take that a step further, there's, when, when you run these types of races, anybody who's run a marathon will know the, the type of fatigue that they experience is um, it's mostly peripheral. You get peripheral neuromuscular fatigue, a lot of muscle damage, particularly for, if it's a road marathon. When you do longer races and you, you start venturing into ultra marathon, 35, 35 miles, 50 miles, hundred miles, you still get that same peripheral neuromuscular fatigue, but it's a different type of pain. It's a different type of fatigue, it's something altogether more visceral. There is enough, literature now to suggest that, that competing in these types of events is probably not good for you in, in the long term. There are a couple of studies now looking at the, the cardiovascular manifestations of long-term participation in ultra-endurance type activities. And it is quite likely that in susceptible people, there, there will be manifestations of cardiovascular pathology, you know, pathological manifestations cardiovascular disease and so forth, myocardial scarring, or myocardial fibro fibrosis. And so long-term participation in these types of events, it probably isn't good for you, but that, I think that's intuitive, right? And we've got to be careful because it's not a false dichotomy. It's not, it's not as if we're saying, well, compete in ultra-endurance events will do nothing at all because the, the risks or the, the, the health risks of doing nothing at all uh, are going to far outweigh the risks of, of long-term participation in endurance exercise. I'm just saying that there's probably somewhere in the middle, you know, this green zone where you're going to get the best of both worlds. But, and then just to circle back, just to try and answer your question, <laughs> it, it's, it's the fact that it's the distance, it's the duration, it's the terrain. It's, you're often contesting races on trail or on mountainous terrain. So you've got this, the ascent and descent, the downhill running we know, causes the greatest muscle damage from eccentric loading of the muscle. And you're often competing in very, either very extremely hot conditions or very cold conditions as well. So all of these things kind of coalesce to, to provide the greatest challenge, the greatest physical and mental challenge to the Of course, the and, and we're not just talking about the, the competing, you know, because what leads up to the competing is a hell of a lot of training, particularly for what, you're talking about here is you know it's, it's not it's not you know a, a few sessions a week uh, you might be able to get away with no training at all and running 
a half marathon possibly it's not you know i, I know people that have done that that um you probably can't really do that for a marathon, but there's no way you'll do that for an ultra. Um, so the, I know from my own sort of dabbling in, into ultra, which more or less broke me, was just the sheer volume of training. And that's where, for me as a nutritionist, you know, I'm, I, my, my first thing is, is not performance, it's about trying to keep my clients, my patients healthy. Um, and that's where my interests are, you know, I've, um, in fact, the podcast before this one was, um, which I did yesterday, actually, was with Trent Stellingworth. And we were talking about, I've spoken to him before on, on other topics, but we were getting into um, nutrition and altitude training. And, you know, the interesting impact that that has. And of course, some of that's relevant to this because some ultras occur at altitude, or at least some of the training or some portions of that event. Um, and other types of sports, even cycling, like, you know, um, uh, Tour de France, a, a form of ultra cycling, which, which is crazy stuff. But it's the training and the, the ability to keep your athlete in sufficient condition that after all of that, they can still compete at the end of that event. And also, it's worth saying, that that most people that are doing this, well, I mean, you've already made it clear, they're not doing this just for health, because quite frankly, you, you can do that in a 20-minute sort of interval sessions or whatever. So there's a, there's a choice here, there's a desire, there's a, a real you know, need to do this. Um, for, for, you know, they're motivated for other reasons, but also, um, you know, at the end of the day, the, 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 these people are, are unlikely to be doing one event a year they're probably doing many events throughout the year i, I know lots sure. of people that are doing many events a year so there's that accumulation of of training stresses stress on the immune system and and so on and so forth so that's why i feel you know this work that you have here and and what we can do as nutritionists um generally is is of particular value to these these athletes who who um who clearly have lots of things on their mind when it comes to preparing for for these events um so that's, that's something I want to maintain throughout this conversation is that it's not just about performance. It is about health and um, keeping people in, in one piece. So with, with that theme in mind, Nick, um, let's just unpack a few things. You know, what do we know about the sort of the, the, the basic demands of training as it relates to, to energy and, and um, we'll, we'll stick with macronutrient demands at this point. I mean, what do we know? Because this isn't just a case of, you know, uh, let's just expand what we know, you know, uh, from a 20 minute running session in, in the lab and just times that by X amount of hours to, you know, to try and somehow, you know, mathematically correlate that to, to what's going to happen here. Obviously, a lot more needs to be done for that. And as you said, you know, there's not a lot of research that's been done on this stuff. So, so how did you go about finding the evidence on this and what were the conclusions on that? Yeah, so, so I guess we, we established very early on that one of the greatest demands to the ultramarathon runner is, is maintaining calorie balance. And that, that, again, that's kind of intuitive, right? But, but it's, it's, it's alarming even how often you come across a runner who is simply not eating enough to fuel their training and even less so for their racing. So I think meeting calorie demands is, is probably the greatest challenge. We talk about this in the paper. 
there, there are lots of contaminants here because you mentioned earlier on that, that sort of sports science in its broadest sense is, a, is quite a young endeavor. It's quite a new science. And so, which is great because it's developing all the time and we're finding out more and more every day. But it's also subject to a, a little bit more manipulation. There's, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's information and misinformation. And it's our job as the scientists and the researchers and the practitioners to help people to distinguish between the information and misinformation. And that's what position stands like this are for. It's to grade the quality of the evidence and filter out the stuff that we don't think is robust enough to use to make re evidence-based recommendations. So for example, you know, we talk about keto diets and it's something that's very, very trendy at the moment, particularly for ultra endurance athletes. And there are a, a few very successful ultra marathon runners who follow keto and they insist that it works. And there's been some interesting research recently showing that ultra endurance athletes tend to favor the opinions of their counterparts of other athletes over the opinions of scientists. Well, what about, you know, in this case where you've got scientists who are also athletes, you know, how, how, do, how do we fit their, their opinions and their perspectives? How do we integrate that into the conversation? And whereas keto clearly works for some people, Absolutely, because uh, there are some, there's some good research on that and there are certainly some interesting case studies. There, is not enough, there are not enough data to start recommending keto for ultra-endurance athletes in general. Mm. Sure, it might work for individuals on an individual basis, but there, there isn't enough data at the moment to start recommending that you know, wholesale. We, we know that being fat adapted is very, very important for ultra-endurance exercise. Obviously, the harder you work, the more carbohydrate you burn. If you work at a higher intensity, then you need a very, very quick and readily available energy source to resynthesize ATP during exercise. That's going to come from carbohydrate. But ultra-marathons are contested at a relatively lower intensity. Even the very, very tough races are contested at a, quite a slow running pace relative to a marathon or a half marathon. So, so you can get away with eating more food and you can get away with eating more calorie dense food stuff. And so your training has to really focus on making you as efficient as possible at burning fat. So we, we talk about this, this term metabolic flexibility and being able to shift your, your metabolism to the type of exercise that you're doing. But certainly the, the emphasis of the training has to be to become substrate efficient so you're efficient at burning fats and the nutrition has obviously got to fit into that so i think yes maintaining your calorie balance is a key challenge but the nutrition and the, the physiology of the training have to align with the long-term demands of the event and ultimately that is being able to, to burn fats at a um, you know as high intensity as you can so yeah, you, I, this is a really interesting area generally because it's it's started to get some attention. So we're seeing terms like metabolic flexibility, um, you know, fuel efficiency, and so on. Do do you? And I've I've spoken about this with various experts in the past. Um, with you know uh, people like John Hawley and Louise Burke and so on. You know, there's there's some real meat here that's um, definitely, you know, definitely worth something. But 
I also see um, a problem here with the terms like metabolic flexibility and terms like, um, you know, being uh, efficient are also somewhat misunderstood by both researchers and practitioners. And by that, I mean, you know, like for example, metabolic flexibility, there's a lot of strength in that term in the sort of the medical area as it relates to how that might benefit um, cardio, uh, um, you know, uh, sort of the whole diabetes risk and insulin issues and so on. I mean, maybe you could just give us a bit more background about that. Also, that stuff is talked about in different contexts. Maybe you could just bring us to the fact that, that you know, what's going on physiologically in terms of that, that efficiency, that flexibility, and why is that actually important? Uh, bearing in mind that we are talking about a competition, so our basic assumption here is someone wants to do fairly well at the event, uh, not sure. just survive the event, but they, you know, they, maybe they, they, whether they want to win it or not is not as important, but they do want to do well. So performance is a matter that is a, a consideration here. Yeah, of course. So I suppose if we bring it back down to basics, we know that in order to to perform sustained muscle contraction, you need energy unless you're doing a sprint, you know, you're going to be using, you're going to be utilizing predominantly the phosphocreatine system or the, the ATP PCR system. That's only going to fuel you for, for maybe 10 to 20 seconds of all out maximal exercise. For anything else, you're going to be burning and oxidizing carbohydrates and fats. So these, these are our main energy substrates. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but as a basic overview. Now, I would say marathon probably is the, the longest distance race where you're going to be uh, really, is, assuming you get your nutrition right, where you're going to be in, in real danger of becoming glycogen depleted. So even in somebody who's very, very well trained, we know that, that glycogen stores, so the storage form of carbohydrate, might be up to maybe 800 grams in somebody who's, who's quite large and very well trained. It's going to be predominantly in the muscle. But, but uh, if you're working at a higher, in, higher enough intensity, particularly if you're working on or above the lactate threshold, if somebody goes out and runs a marathon a little bit too quick, and every, you know, we all know somebody who's been there or have been there ourselves, mispaced our marathon effort or our half marathon, you can burn through your carbohydrate stores pretty quickly in two hours or so. And that's what, what we term is hitting the wall when you become glycogen depleted, become lethargic and heavy and tired, maybe experience hyperglycemia, so your blood sugar levels drop and the wheels fall off. I love this term. I use it a lot. It's something that they don't, they don't have that term in, in the States. When the <laughs> wheels fall off, everything starts going wrong. You, know, you, you can't keep going. Yeah. And I've been there more than once and it's taken me many years of running marathons to get my nutrition and my training right to the point where I, where I don't hit the wall anymore. So, but in ultramarathon, as I mentioned, because you're working at a, at a lower relative, relative intensity, compared to if you're going to run a marathon, then you're going to be burning a greater a proportion of your fat stores. You're sure you're going to be eating, and we suggest in the paper that if you want to complete these races, you need to be consuming somewhere between 150 to 400 calories per hour, depending on your body mass and the duration of the race. But even if you're eating very well and you've, and you've got your nutrition down, you, you need to be as fat efficient as possible because if you're doing a race of 48 hours, you, you don't have 48 hours of carbohydrate reserves. They're just not there. Mm. It doesn't matter how much you eat. 
and your gut is going to shut down long before you can you can take in that much carbohydrate to begin with so the more efficient we are at, at mobilizing and oxidizing free fatty acids in the body the more likely we are to be able to sustain the rigors of these types of events even the really really long races so for example i was out in chamonix over the summer with uh, Bruce Johnson's group at the Mayo Clinic, and we were doing some research on the, on the cardiopulmonary responses to the UTMB. And some of these athletes, even the really good ones, were finishing the race in well above 40 hours, right? And this is a 100-mile trail race, single stage, because it's a very tough race. It's, it's up in the mountains. There are periodic uh, stints at, at moderate to high altitude. But the relative intensity is still quite low. So regardless of what they eat and how well conditioned they are, they're going to be burning through fat stores. So the more efficient you can become at mobilizing and oxidizing fats in training, the more likely you are to be successful in these types of events. And we talk a little bit in the, in the position stand about some of the strategies to optimize that in training. So in a, like in, in work that I've read, um, like for example, with Louise Burke, she makes a comment and this is, you know, not specifically a statement about, um, metabolic flexibility, um, carbohydrates and fats, etc. uh, for ultra endurance, but it is for endurance events and where there's a propensity to, um, you know the the focus is on efficiency but it but it is at the expense the metabolic machinery's expense of being able to uh pull out uh, uh to quote trent stoneworth gears five six and seven when it's necessary and by that i mean for example the uh, sprint finishes um you know the, the the hill climbs that sort of thing in ultra events then is that is that less of an issue you feel or it's not as important or it is actually something that can still be factored in as you approach maybe the periodization of your fuel intake, which is something they talk about a lot now in endurance training, but is that relevant for ultra endurance training? Um, you know, where there is still a competition mindset. Yeah, I think it is absolutely relevant, but it's probably just a little bit less relevant. So, for example, on a, for, for the elite athletes especially, if there's a particularly tough hill climb or, or there might be a sprint finish, you know, it's, it's rarer, but it, these are certainly scenarios that could present themselves. So having that kind of metabolic flexibility, as you say, where you can switch gears, that's going to really benefit an elite level athlete. But the flip side of that is, a lot of the determinants of performance in ultra marathon are about how much is are about sustaining your pace and, and having the robustness and the conditioning to attenuate the decline in running speed. You know, for the vast majority of the field, and again, I, I know this from experience, unless you are an elite athlete, you are going to be walking the uphills. Maybe if it's a, if it's a, if it's a 50 K race, it's short enough for you to, to run the whole thing because you're not thinking so much about preserving you know, and conserving your energy. If you're doing a 50 miler or a hundred miler, everyone except the elite runners are going to be walking the uphills because you have to, because you have to preserve 
And by elite, I mean, we are, that's the elite of the elite, really, isn't it? The, the people who are winning the races. elite a little bit incorrectly, don't they? But yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. The, the people who are, who are going to be winning the races or, or are going to yeah. be on the podium. But you would run the flats and downhills. And ironically, we, as we know, it's the downhills that do the most damage, but let's not go there. <laughs> but So maybe we should be running the uphills and walking the downhills. But, but yeah. I, I sort of, I only, oh, partly joke. So... But so for the vast majority of the field, it's about sustaining your pace and about attenuating the the inevitable decline in your running pace. And actually, the people that do best in these races are the ones that start slow and can maintain the pace throughout. And I've seen it time and time again. Again, we're talking about non-elite runners here, which is the vast majority of the field. They go out too quick, then they end up slowing down and they struggle towards yeah. the end. But if you've done things correctly, if you've done things well, you've paced yourself correctly, you've trained well, you're conditioned, and your nutrition is right, then you can sustain your pace and even pick it up. And in some even very, very tough races, it's possible to do a negative split. It's still not going to be quick, relatively, but you can, you can actually feel stronger as the race progresses. But, if you, but it takes a lot of time and experience and practice and getting everything right for that to happen. That is why I find this so interesting as a practitioner working with athletes in this in this area. And everything you pointed out there is absolutely spot on, I think, from my own perspective. And, and it, you know, you, it is more than just a straight up theoretical concept of performance. You know, uh, it's, it, there's a lot there. There's a strategy that's involved. And what you, you pointed out is, you know, it's like the tortoise and the hare very much, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And although we're not getting into psychology, there's going to be a massive uh, dose of that in there. But let's just go back to the, the the nutritional influences then on maximizing fuel efficiency. I think we've made a good case for the need to be uh, fuel efficient. There's a great deal of nuances here that might be very individual. And of course, you're going to have to factor that in it's not, you know, what we're presenting here in the paper is not, it's not a, a, a one size fits all. You still got to, you know, think about this and the type of event and where it's at and where you're at yourself, obviously. Sure. Um, but take us through, you know, the, the, the process, um, uh, you know, what, the, what's relevant here to maximizing fuel efficiency. So, so as I mentioned, it's about ensuring that you are as efficient as possible mobilizing or oxidizing fat so this this will come through your both your nutrition and your training and it's funny that you could you could know nothing about science and have had have read no scientific papers in your life and there's a good chance that as an ultra endurance runner you'll have been doing a lot of this stuff just just uh, through your training so first and foremost it's about getting the miles in that there isn't there is no substitute for getting enough miles under your belt. So not only are you training your cardiovascular system and your musculoskeletal system to be robust enough to sustain the rigors of training and competition, but you're, you're also making your body more efficient at burning fat just by getting enough miles in. We know that there are certain things that we can do from a cell signaling perspective to maximize fat oxidation. So as an example, and again, we mentioned this in the paper, going out and training on an empty stomach before breakfast first thing in the morning. We know that 
we can become 50 to 60% glycogen depleted overnight. So before you take breakfast, go out and do a slow, steady training run before taking in any calories. We know that there, there is some research, although it has been contested, that training twice a day every other day might be more effective at facilitating these, these endurance adaptations than training once every day. And that's because the second session that you do, you are slightly glycogen depleted. So you might be, you might be maximizing these endurance adaptations that way. I think it's, we've got to be very careful about the terms that we use because there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk in the literature about carbohydrate restriction. Yeah. And I very much prefer the term carbohydrate moderation. So it's this idea of, moderating your carbohydrate to align with your training so that there's got to be a steady flux in carbohydrate intake that is congruent with your training demands if you're doing a lot of miles and particularly at a high intensity you're going to need more carbohydrate if you've got a, a number of very slow steady sessions or maybe even an easy day or a rest day then you're obviously going to need less carbohydrate but we know that you that you should not be training, and again, some people will contest this, but you probably shouldn't be training chronically with very, very low carbohydrate intake because we know that this can have a knock-on effect on your ability to train, immune function, your ability to recover as well. So I'm a big fan of moderating carbohydrates to align with your training demands rather than restricting them. And these all feed into the to manipulation of self-signaling pathways to maximize fat oxidation because that is what is ultimately going to help you in the long term to, to train and compete in these types of events. And there's a, there's just, just, there's two things there. I just wanted to add in as a nutritionist, I think, you know, uh, and someone who's interested in, in food as something that's more than just fuel. It is something that we enjoy. We look forward to, um, but also something we'll get into in a bit, which is the, uh, the bigger picture the consequences of, you know, all this chronic high volume training and energy expenditure is the, you know, the very real risk of um, energy deficiency, you know, initially low energy availability, which has a very negative impact, obviously, on training adaptations and so on, but, but much, much deeper problem, which is the, um, the, the potentially very significant impact of relative energy deficiency, which I've done loads of pod, podcasts uh, on that. The other thing, though, also... Um, uh, and I'm a, a co-author of another paper that's going to come out soon uh, that's all about um, uh, uh, probiotics and the gut and athletes. And there's an angle there where we, we also need to remember the, the, the need for carbohydrates or carbohydrate-rich foods is that they also play a role in how they interact with, with bacteria and uh, the impact that that has on the gut and how we extract food. And, you know, there's a whole another topic there that I'll get into on another day. Um, but I think it's worth saying there, isn't it, that, that carbohydrate, for those that, that really want to get into that, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not eat any carbs at all because I'm going to be, um, and, and this is the next topic we're going to get into, is, is I want to go down the high fat, ketogenic approach because if for no other reason it's trendy and like you said uh, i'm not going to listen to what the scientists say this is what my buddies are doing um and there's a lot of them and in fact i'm noticing still yet more of of them um the consequences of carbohydrate restriction then would be what well so mike gleason for example has, has done 
some research and written a number of re reviews on the negative implications of long-term carbohydrate depletion. We, we know that cortisol, for example, one of the key stress hormones is elevated following training, but even more so in, in training without foods. So when, you, when you participate in a long duration training session without taking calories, then circulating stress hormones increase. We, we get a, a certain decrease in immunosurveillance and immune function, which in the long term puts you at increased risk of, of picking up viruses. And that's a, that's a big deal for an athlete, you know, because you can put all this time and effort into training and periodizing and eating well and sleeping well. And then a week out from your competition, you, you, you get the flu or you, you get a cold virus that that's going to wipe you out and you can't compete. Or you might be several weeks out from training while you recover from one of these things. So immune function is, is a key aspect. We know that it's not, there's a lot of, talk about protein and how important protein is for maximizing muscle protein synthesis to aid in muscle recovery. But carbohydrate is critical for muscle recovery as well. Mm. And if you're just consuming protein, then you're missing a key macronutrient here for, for, for optimizing muscle recovery following training. But we also know that you can't, it's very difficult to train at high intensities without carbohydrate. And you mentioned that the, the Trent was talking about this idea of finding gears four, five, and six. And it's very difficult to do that without carbohydrate because we, we, we can't unlock the calories from fat quick enough. That's why we have different energy substrates. And carbohydrate is a very quick, readily available source of energy. So if we're going to work at high intensities, if we're going to do any kind of sprint work, then we have to have the energy available to do that. In fact, it's not going to be sufficient. There's one other thing that I wanted to quickly touch upon, and you, you sort of alluded to it earlier, is this idea of gut training. Mm. And gut training, that there's more and more research now emerging in this area because it's something that's critical, particularly for ultra-endurance type, type activities, where your gut is going to shut down. In, in a very long race, you are going to have gut problems. In a very long duration race, particularly if it's in the heat, we know that we get relative gut hypoperfusion, so we get less blood flow to the gut. Your gut is going to empty more slowly. And this can cause, typically, it's upper GI disturbances. So uh, bloating, heartburn, and nausea, especially. And this is it's so prevalent. You know, up to 90% of ultra-endurance runners are going to experience nausea and upper GI distress. And we can train the gut to be more tolerant and to be more robust at dealing with these types of sensations. And that all comes through training. That all comes with practice. So it's not about implementing a really robust strategy for the day. It's about practicing it in training and making sure that the strategy that you have in place is optimal for the way that your body works. And so that is a really integral component of the periodization strategy it's not just periodizing your training periodizing your nutrition but practicing it in advance before race day yeah and you highlight that um later on in the paper you you know it is made very clear that although some strategies may be stated as being you know specific to racing 
you still got to practice them at other times. Like you say, you, you've got to find, uh, you've got to tinker, if you like, to be scientific with a strategy to find the best way to make it work. Uh, and the other one that's a, that's pretty obvious, particularly if anyone wants to Google these uh, pretty nasty images of people that have um, a pretty uh, a pretty bad day in the uh, in the shorts department, shall we say? Uh, it, it, you know, after taking a product, a supplement, etc., or a food, uh, and there's a negative uh, gut reaction there, it can be a pretty nasty one, which absolutely would uh, slow you down one yeah. way one way or the other. But, but it also comes back to things like, you know, other, other supplements like caffeine. When yeah. you're doing a 24-hour race, caffeine can be very effective as a stimulant because the sleep deprivation can, it makes racing very difficult, but on technical terrain, it can, it can compromise athlete safety. And a lot of people ask me, should I be taking caffeine? And it's, it's, such a, it's almost impossible to answer because some people are hypersensitive to caffeine. Some some people will have one cup of coffee and they'll be they'll be shaking for the rest of the day, you know, and and others can can happily sink five six cups and barely even feel it. So we have genetic differences for how we process caffeine, as an example, and that's going to be that's a very individual response. You only know that by trying it tentatively and figuring out what works for you, and that's just one example of that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, I mean. That's the great thing, though, and I think that's why you need to embark on these things with the kinds of knowledge that there is in this paper and listening to this podcast. And, um, you know, I, I want to make it clear that, that everyone should consult not just with, you know, books and papers and podcasts, but should also, you know, interact with a, a sort of a qualified nutrition professional or a sports scientist that works in this area to, you know, to take that, that, that what's written into reality. Um, I think, you know, sometimes people avoid that just because they've got those resources. They feel they don't need that help. Make their life a lot easier. You know, you, you look at the amount of time and effort that people put into all this training. They've got coaches and so on. The, uh, the, the nutritionist or the sports scientist should be absolutely part of that, that process. Um, right. High fat ketogenic diets. Um, let, let's 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 look at that. Let's let's look at the uh, the evidence. Let's look at why, you know, a high fat diet has its merits. Let's look at where we're at with the whole ketogenic diet thing. It's probably worth mentioning um, the, the, the 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 ketone supplements as well. The exogenous intake of of ketones. Um, it sounds like the same thing as a ketogenic diet, but it's not. Um, and I think that's worth just a, a, a comment here. So. So, so you know, the, what are the considerations and the interest and, and such with high-fat and ketogenic diets then, Nick? Well, I guess the, the premise here is that, as we've alluded to, being able to burn fat efficiently is such a, such a prerequisite for performance in ultra-endurance sports. And, and in a lot of sports, most endurance sports, in fact, but particularly ultra-endurance, because as we've said, you don't have enough carbohydrate to fuel your body for 12, 24, 48 hours of exercise. So you, it's important to be able to burn fat efficiently. And the idea here is that ketogenic diet kind of forces the body to be more efficient at doing that. And a typical ketogenic diet has a very, very low carbohydrate content, very low carbohydrate intake. And there are lots of pros and cons to that, which I think is a, it's probably another podcast. You may have, you may have even done one already on that. 
I but I think, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But so, so but we won't go into that. But but I think one of the key aspects here is that a lot of people think that to, to be on a true ketogenic diet, you've got to consume little to no carbohydrate at all. But there, there are some studies showing that you can get very, very similar ketogenic responses. You can, you can be in ketosis by consuming somewhere between 70 to 80 grams of carbohydrate a day or up to. Obviously, if you go substantially beyond that, then you mm. start to negate the, the benefits. So it's not necessarily a case of having to eliminate all carbohydrates from your diet. But you, you might still be able to consume up to 80, gram, 80 grams a day and, and still get some of the benefits. There, there isn't enough research to advocate ketogenic diets for ultra-endurance activity. It's just not been studied in ultramarathon runners enough. There are some studies and a few case studies as well. And a lot of the research so far has been done in rodent models. But we, we simply don't have the understanding to advocate that for ultra-endurance activities. We know that high-intensity performance is compromised on a ketogenic diet because of the insufficient carbohydrate availability. Whether that is going to substantially hinder somebody who's preparing for ultra-endurance sport is, is another question that needs to be considered. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I mean, there's a lot of anecdote. And, you know, if we're going to look at sort of hierarchies of, you know, the quality of science and so on, as it's applied to science, you know, anecdote, maybe not so valuable, but there is a value in case studies and anecdotes, just depending on how you, you know, how you filter that information. The problem we've got is that it's used and abused and broadcasted in such a way that it's just apparently absolute proof, which it isn't. I mean, you and I both know, you know, some of the, some of the best, you know, ultra endurance athletes out there and they absolutely are consuming carbohydrates and so on. I think, I think the, I think you make a particularly good point and this, this dials right back to the very beginning where I said that, that we do need to make a few definitions and have a few discussions about things because when people use terms like, you know, uh, low carb or even other, you know, like high protein, low protein, we all mean different things. And I think that that's an issue there. Like, if you were to say, you know, somewhere between 50 and 80 grams of carbohydrates could still technically be a low carb diet. Some people would be horrified. That's a huge amount of carbohydrate. Mm. It isn't actually. When you look at what that actually looks like on your plate, it's not much, not really. Um, mm. So I think that, the, yeah, again, there, there, there's a lack of um, sort of real world food on your plate perspectives there. And, and the that people do feel the need to be one thing or the other, don't they? It's black or white, and that just isn't necessary. Well, and, and this, this feeds into, at a risk of going off on a tangent, this feeds into a major bugbear of mine. It's something I've written about recently that I'd love to discuss with you, maybe at another time and place. Hmm. But it's this idea that people have feel the need to have to belong to a certain camp now. It's almost like people won't follow a diet unless it's packaged and commercialized and sold to them you know, with a monthly subscription. This, this idea of a ketogenic diet, okay, you, you, you're going, a ketogenic diet in theory is when you are in ketosis, but actually a lot of the favorable adaptations or purported favorable adaptations will come from simply moderating your carbohydrate to align with your training volume anyway. So it's training moderately glycogen depleted to facilitate fat oxidation. 
but for some reason it has to be labeled it has to be uh, packaged and sold and commercialized you know it's like paleo for example i don't want to <laughs> oh, i don't no, i don't no. want to no. get emails about this but you know paleo don't get me wrong paleo actually has yeah the the general guidelines for paleo are quite sensible yeah you know eat lots of vegetables eat nuts and seeds make sure you get your protein that, but that's just good advice why yeah. does it have to be packaged and sold and and why do we have to label it why can't we just call it good nutrition um because it's what do you think to, lauren <laughs> well yeah no no you're not you're not getting me into that one i i have to say that that is a fundamental problem we have as human beings and that that's taken advantage of by people which is what makes things so you know that sort of the various cults the um the trends the, the fads have those characteristics they don't sell as well when you look at the research behind these sorts of things you know what 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 makes something trendy or sexy or whatever they've got these unique characteristics that make them easy to sell especially on twitter or you know social media um and that is worth us talking about as you have done because you know, um, I, I like the word periodization because it makes you think about the fact that there are different things happening on different days, even within a day, different parts of the season. Um, and to quote James Morton, you know, that it's not low carb, it's not high carb, it's just smart carb, you know, yeah. in the I, carbohydrate I conversation. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Fuel for the work required. In fact, um, a few podcasts back, I did a whole podcast on that with, with Mark Harris, who's on my team at the IOPM. Um, that's where all his PhD work has been. You know, it's absolutely mind-boggling that people can't see it for anything other than just being black and white. And this is this is a critical issue. You will not do very well as a as a competitor or as a survivor of these events if you don't grasp this concept. You know, we're very complex beings. We have fantastically um, capable and adaptive systems, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, how plastic our muscles are, the flexibility of our metabolisms. And if we are going to be very vanilla about everything and just do the same thing all the time, we, you know, that, that comes at the risk of our body's ability to be flexible. Like if you were to put that into the metabolic flexibility conversation, you know, if you, if, if, to quote Louise Burke, you know, you, you can go, low carb all the time and keto but that's at the expense of your ability to use carbohydrates and and why would you do that because there are times that you need the rocket fuel you know um smart 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 fueling smart periodization is what it's about um right let's move away if you're happy with with that shall we move away from that area the the the, the topic that everyone seems to love to talk about is protein. I can tell you now that when I look at the stats behind this podcast, if it's got the word protein in the title, there's like hundreds of thousands of downloads. Um, and um, if it's got any anything else in the title, it tends to be a radically lower number. Mm -hmm. Protein's a really interesting topic. And I've, I've spoken about this with lots of people from Stu Phillips to Kevin Tipton um and many others and it's just mind-boggling how popular this is but it is important of course and and if there's one group of people who 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 i find tend to ignore it because they they think protein is all about big muscles and getting bulked up and so on is is endurance athletes um so let's let's help correct that what why is protein important um as it relates to the the, the you know the impact of training um, and, um, and then let's get practical about it. Right. Like, how do you remedy that? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, as you said, it is a big problem in ultra-endurance sports. And particularly during, training is one thing, but racing is another. And during racing, you're, you're kind of often in, in races where you're not self-sufficient, where you're relying on eight stations and checkpoints. You are at the mercy of race organizers to provide you with protein. Now, you, you wouldn't go throughout your, you wouldn't go about your typical work day, for example, without consuming protein for 12 hours. You know, if you're, if you're a, not, not even an athlete, but if you're an exerciser, if you're health conscious, you know, everybody understands the importance of getting enough protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And it, it feeds into these feelings of satiety as well. So protein, we, we all get it. And you wouldn't go for 12 hours or you wouldn't go for a whole day without consuming any protein. A lot of ultra endurance athletes, a lot of ultra marathon runners will go into a race and not consume any protein. And they might be out there for 12, 24, 48 hours. And so that's something that we've got to fix. I think protein, just to touch on what you said at the start there, I think protein is so popular because number one, there are a lot of myths and a lot of misinformation about it, but also humans are conditioned to seek out the, this kind of one quick trick that's going to fix all of our problems and help us get in shape and give us big muscles and everything else. And I think protein is often fed into that. This is why clickbait is so uh, popular because it offers you one very quick, simple solution that's going to absolve you of all your sins and you know, bust your belly fat and give you big muscles and better looking at everything else. And that's just not how life works. And it's not how the body works. So protein is important, but it's one piece of, of a very big, complex jigsaw puzzle. So I think, yeah, getting in in training, that, you know, that, that's ubiquitous. But during racing is where a lot of athletes really struggle because they are often at the mercy of race organizers to provide protein and they often don't. And they don't, and we don't often have the uh, foresight to prepare in advance to take our own sources of protein with us. And, you know, the, the typical advice is to get a, a good source of high quality protein every three to four hours throughout the day. So why should that be any different when you're out there running, running an ultramarathon? So if we just go back to the fact that in order to compete in an ultramarathon, you're going to have to do a lot of running or cycling or whatever. You know, there's a lot of ultra training behind an ultra marathon event and the consequences of all that training. And I'm referring to um, muscle damage here. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about what's happening there. Cause I think that understanding that helps us understand why it is important to have um, more protein, let's say than a sedentary person, for example. Sure. Well, when, when we think about the, the rigors of training, it's obviously, it goes without saying that the individual has to prepare for very extreme durations. The, the average mileage is obviously going to be much higher training on consecutive days. Most ultra marathons, although by no means all, are contested on trails or mountainous terrain. So we've got the, this kind of undulating component, particularly if it's rocky or technical terrain, then that's going to uh, kind of provoke much greater muscle damage. We know that running downhill, and there are lots of good studies on this, showing that, that the downhill component induces the greatest muscle damage because of the muscle is lengthening under load and the eccentric component there. So 
it's even more important for an ultra endurance athlete because of all of these things to make sure that they're hitting their individual protein demands. And I think the literature is pretty clear on this. I think that that's the, the great and sometimes the really frustrating thing about protein is that yes, there's some stuff we don't know, but actually there's an awful lot we do know. And there are some great researchers that have done some, some published some great studies in this. And it's given us a pretty good understanding of what our dietary protein or, or what our what protein in our diet should look like in terms of the amount per day, how often, the amount per dose, what types of proteins in terms of the bioavailability. And there's some pretty clear guidelines on this, which is why it's frustrating to still see people getting it so wrong. So when we talk about protein, I think it's also important to talk about the sort of the types of protein, the quality of protein. And we've already um, discussed that, particularly in this, this area, there's a, a, a high tendency, a high risk that athletes are going to engage in some, some trends, shall we say, such as going low carb or keto um, on an extreme level, at least. Um, and that also goes for uh, dietary preferences. And by that, I mean, you know, uh, there's a, a trend, for example, to going down, say, a vegan pathway. But inevitably, that's going to have an impact on the types of protein that are available to athletes and, and obviously the quality. What, what is the relevance of all this um, as it relates to an ultra marathon runner? Well, the, the first thing that comes to mind is during racing because that, that's where the, it becomes much more complex. We, we know that in very long duration activities, you know, anything more than 12 hours, for example, that's kind of off the top of my head, but we know that we get taste fatigue. So you start off taking in relatively sweet carbohydrate based foods and sooner or later you are going to switch. Now, some people have postulated that this might be because it reflects chemical imbalances in the body, but sooner or later you are going to start craving more fat based salty foods. Now that's great in terms of energy provision, number one, but also it's an opportunity to take in more protein because if you start start consuming more meat-based products, uh, foods with high salt and fat content, that often contains meat. So uh, beef jerky goes down very well. Uh, they don't have them in the, in, the, um, in the US, but in the UK, sausage rolls are, are quite a big deal, like ultra-endurance races. Yeah, that's one of, the, one of the things that I miss about being in the US. Uh, and, and, and these types of food become very, very, but you know, cheese, a lot of cheese gets consumed in ultramarathon events, which is something that if you were to say to somebody that, that you'd be doing a running race eating cheese, cheese sandwiches and, and sausage rolls and beef jerky, they'd look at you as if you go crazy. But if you've ever run one of these races, you'll know that that's entirely normal because you, you get this taste fatigue earlier on and you don't want to consume sweet food. So that's a great opportunity to get in more protein. In terms of the, the, the vegan approach, again, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. It is absolutely possible to meet all of your protein requirements with a vegan or a vegetarian diet. Absolutely. It just takes more thought and more planning because it's harder. And we've got to consider this idea of the quality of the protein, getting a full amino acid profile. And again, that is absolutely possible with a plant-based protein diet, but it just takes more planning. It's, it's about getting certain combinations of plant-based foods and, and blending them appropriately so that you're getting 
high concentrations of lysine here or methionine here and, and making sure that you're just planning in advance. The problem that we have is a lot of people who decide to follow one of these diets don't necessarily have the time or the inclination or the knowledge base to be able to do that effectively. Yeah. And that's when, particularly for athletes, it's important for them to work with a, a qualified nutritionist or a dietitian or at the very least, a very, very good exercise professional who understands the, the nutritional implications here to help them to, to achieve these, um, to, to help them meet their protein demands. And I don't think it would be um, right to, you know, mention some of the misinformation that is out there. You know, the, the Game Changers documentary, for example. Yeah, I went there. I went there, Lauren. You know, I've, I've, well, look, uh, for tr complete transparency, I've not seen it, so I'm, I'm not going to comment. So All I know is about it. yeah. it's very, very popular. My friends in the UK are talking about it. They're talking about it here. My friends in the US are talking about it. And there's a lot of information in there. But, but if you speak to, from what I've seen, and maybe you could expand upon this if, if you want to, but from what I've seen, it's the, the expert nutritionists who have a bit of a problem with some of the things, some of the messages that have come across in there. We don't need to go in, in, into the detail, but the point is there, there is a, are obviously two camps there. And we've just got to make sure that particularly with vegan and vegetarian diets, that, that we're following the right advice, that it's evidence-based, and that we're working with the, the qualified nutrition professionals who can actually guide athletes and exercises and making the right decisions about these things. No, absolutely. And I look, I, I, my perspective here is we're talking about this from a scientific perspective as it relates to training adaptations and performance as opposed to, you know, a, a, an ethical or ecological sure. or environmental approach. It just so happens, though, that two podcasts ago, I did an entire podcast on protein and endurance athletes with Dr. Dan Moore, who's like the big man on this topic. And that was a fantastic episode. And, you know, the, the, to mirror your statement, it is absolutely possible to be vegan for whatever reasons you're going to be a vegan, for example, um, and take care of your needs. It's just going to be a lot trickier and therefore you need to be a lot more informed. Um, and by that, I mean, you need, you need unbiased, you know, expertise behind this rather than, um, you know, watching Netflix documentaries and so on. So, um, we're going to move on from there. So, um, um, look, we, we talked about carbohydrate, we've talked about fat, we've talked about the bigger picture of energy balance and energy availability, or at least we've referenced it. And um, I've talked briefly about the risk of getting that all wrong and ultimately relative energy deficiency, which we've done on many podcasts. But what about fluid and hydration? This is This is something that is a really big one. You, you, you know, you hear in, you hear in the literature, like with just, just marathons, for example, some athletes dying because they got their hydration strategies wrong, hyponatremia being the impact there. But also, you know, I'm aware of athletes that, that they get their fluid intake uh, wrong for many reasons um, that you can take us through where one consequence can also be that they're weighing themselves down too much by over-consuming too much fluid. 
Um, if, if they are trying to win the race, there's a propensity to stop and pee, basically. There's, you know, I've talked about that with Lewis James um, and Stavros Kavouros, both experts in, in hydration and talked about endurance. But in ultra events, this is, a, again, a slightly different perspective. To, you know, both as a scientist and a researcher, uh, but also someone who's, who's undertaken these events yourself, you know, to take us through <laughs> why hydration is important, but the caveats and the nuances behind that and the practical stuff that you feel we need to know. Yeah, I, the, the first thing that comes to mind is that, as, as we've mentioned a few times, is that it's inevitable that the gut is going to start to shut down, particularly in the very, very long duration races. And th this is for a number of different reasons we know that we get a relative gut hypoperfusion we can get what's called leaky gut syndrome where we get endotoxins leaking into the into the systemic circulation manifesting as endotoxemia this can bring about a low-grade inflammatory state and feelings of nausea and so forth but when the gut does start to shut down then one of the consequences of that is that you you tend to want to eat less because you feel nauseated. If you feel sick, then you're not going to want to eat as much, right? But you're also not going to drink as much. And it doesn't matter how, how knowledgeable, knowledgeable you are on this topic. You can, you can be of the understanding of how much fluid you need and have a strategy going into the race. But if you feel sick or if you are being sick, then it's, it's very difficult to meet your fluid demands. And if you're not drinking, then you're more than likely not meeting your electrolyte demands as well, because most individuals get their electrolytes in, in their fluid. So there are guidelines in place, but being able to stick to them is often really problematic. It, it becomes even more difficult in the heat because the heat exacerbates these feelings of nausea. It causes uh, more, more blood to be redirected away from the gut to the periphery to aid in in heat loss, in radiative heat loss. And in hot and humid conditions, there, there is only so much fluid that you can drink. You know, you, you can drink as much as you can possibly tolerate. It's often not enough. And, and if the rate of gastric emptying slows, we know that it will start to slow anytime you get above 60 to 65% VO2 max. It's gonna be a, a lower percentage of max when you're exercising in the heat for the reasons that I've just mentioned. And as I've said, there is only so much fluid that you can drink. One of the mistakes that ultra-endurance runners make is that they have this idea in the head of just maintaining a certain pace throughout the duration of the event. Perhaps they have a particular time in mind and they're not able to, to be flexible enough with their approach. So, and, and I've seen this a lot with, with some very, very experienced runners, and I'm, I'm sure you have as well that they will maintain their pace regardless of the conditions in terms of the environmental conditions and regardless of their, of to the extent to which they can stick to their nutrition strategy. Yeah. Now, if, if it gets very, very hot, the reality is you're probably going to eat less, but you've, you've got to try and maintain your hydration state status as much as you possibly can. You're going to get dehydrated. But you've got to try and mitigate that as much as possible. But you're going to have to slow your running pace. You can't maintain the work rate. It, when, when the conditions become very, very hot, you've got to slow your running speed. You're probably going to have to focus a little bit more on fluid as opposed to the calorie intake for a short while. And you're going to have to be able to adapt. If you can't adapt, then it's a matter of time before that's going to catch up with you. 
and I'm, I'm curious to know what your perspective on that is in, in terms of the, the athletes that you've worked with. Well, I, I, for me, it's, to be honest, it's been so individual, but also highly dependent on the events and the environments that they're racing in. I mean, you know, this is mentioned in the paper. I just think that it, it's a really difficult one because it is potentially dangerous if you get this one wrong. You know, like you, sure. you can... You can you can get your fueling strategies wrong, and mostly the worst that will happen is you're just going to have a really crap race in terms of not doing very well. But you get your hydration strategies wrong, you can have a pretty serious serious problem. But I think this goes back to something that that has been stated in the paper: is this, this is why you've got to trial these things outside of competition, um, and also why I feel. You know, you've you got to be careful about just reading stuff in papers and, and applying it into practice, you know, um, without due consideration of, of, of some real world, you know, aspects here and where you probably should get some advice if you do not know what you're doing. Um, fortunately, a lot of these athletes are people who've engaged in many days of training, many hours of, of exercise and also... Um, a lot of events where they've had an opportunity to, to practice a lot of this stuff. Um, with that in mind then, that, that, and we, this is mentioned in the paper, that there are ways to monitor your hydration. Do you have any uh, particular comments that you, you feel that are worth talking about in that regard? Um, do, you, do you mean specifically during training or racing? Or during both? training, yeah. During training. Yeah, so the, the, there are obviously some gold standards here. We can look at urine osmolality if you have access to a, to a physiologist in the physiology lab, and some people may do, and that's great. But for the most part, that's not going to be the case. So there are some, some very simple and accessible strategies. And one of, one of them is, is the urine color chart. You know, it, it's, not a, it's not foolproof, and there are a, a few... Uh, technical considerations when when using it but but typically if your urine is very very clear then that would suggest that you are relatively well hydrated obviously if you go and drink a liter of fluid then then very very in a very short space of time you know 10 minutes later you're going to be peeing most of that out so that's not a fair reflection of how hydrated you are but assuming you're you're taking in your fluid throughout the day in kind of a a, a drip kind of intake then you can use the urine color chart as a, as a as an easy and accessible means of checking your hydration status. One thing that the athletes don't do enough of is trying doing their best to understand what their individual hydration needs are, and that's something that you can do very very easily on a day to day basis. It's just to weigh yourself before and after a typical training session, and and me measure nude body mass if you can, or at the very least. Just make sure the clothes are consistent pre and post and get an idea of, of how much fluid you're losing. So go out and, and train for an hour and weigh yourself before and after. Obviously, you need to take into account any fluid that you take in during the training session. But you look at the, the pre to post body mass reduction and you can get an idea as to how much fluid you're losing in those conditions when doing that type of workout. And you can keep a record of that you want to get a little bit more technical, then you can go and exercise in a temperature controlled environment. And then you can see how much fluid you're losing at a given temperature. 
And again, if you have access to a physiology lab, you might do this a little bit more scientifically in an, an environmental chamber. But everybody's going to have different hydration requirements based on their sweat response. Some people will lose a lot of sweat because they have a very, very acute, very keen sweat response, and others less so. We can also look at the sweat sodium concentration. Again, to do that technically, to do that from a scientific perspective, you need the expertise, you need the technology. Some people are very, very salty sweaters, and some people, again, relatively less so. But we, we published a paper a few years ago looking at the correlation of people's perceptions of how much sodium they lost in sweat against how much sodium they actually lost in sweat and found that there was a very, very close correlation, particularly for people who are experienced athletes. So if you think you're a salty sweater based on, you know, if you, if you regularly see salt patches on your clothes or if, you know, if a bead of sweat trips down your face and you, and it, you know, you, you happen to taste it and it's very, very salty, which if, if you're a regular exerciser, that's probably happened to you more than once. You'll, you'll get a sense of whether you are a very salty sweater or not. And as, as I've said, in a, in a sample of several hundred, we found that there was a pretty close correlation between people's perceptions. So using all of these tools, we can you know, get a fairly holistic understanding of what our hydration needs are, what our uh, electrolyte and specifically sodium needs are as well. And we can monitor that on a on a day-to-day -day basis and we can try and mitigate kind of the negative implications of chronic dehydration. So let, let's just, I think this is a really interesting topic because I think there's a, you know, it's easy to get obsessed with the whole carbohydrates and fat thing. But um, from my experience with, with my athletes, the hydration thing, dealing with um, the um, electrolytes and the, again, there's, the, the, there's, you know, lots of people out there are pushing these various commercial products for electrolyte replacement. There are a number of at home or at least um, at event tests. Now you've got, or, or, you know, a lot of these big events will have um, some sort of uh, commercial event, you know, to sell kit etc and you'll usually see a testing station there for you know various kinds of tests and so on um and these are all things that are going to inform people's decision making even coaches and 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 so on um what what are what are the key key aspects there that you think i mean for example the you talked about this right at the beginning actually that, that you know what is the consequence then of getting your electrolyte strategy wrong i.e you know, salt in the diet and or the consumption of these commercial electrolyte-like products, um, you know, during an event, train, you know, significant training, which is not so different from the event itself. What I mean, is there anything there that you think is worth getting into? Well, I think there's, as we've said, there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of people take advice from professionals to heart. Every year, at least one or two people die during major marathons because they're because of water intoxication. And there's advice, you know, make sure you, if it's a hot day, drink plenty of water. You know, we, we hear it. It's this old trope. We hear it on the on the news and in in magazines. You know, if it's a hot day, drink plenty of water. Well, actually, that can get you into a lot of trouble if you take that advice too literature too literally. You've got to drink enough water to be to be appropriately hydrated, and Ideally, don't just drink water. 
drink some kind of fluid that has that's going to replace sodium that, that you're going to lose in sweat. A lot of people forget that you don't just lose fluid in sweat, you lose key electrolytes and particularly sodium as well. So we've got to replace that. Fortunately, hyponatremia is relatively rare, but it is most common in ultra endurance type activities. So uh, ultra endurance triathlon and running races that last longer than six hours because people are sweating for a prolonged period of time and you're, you're obviously losing fluid, you're losing electrolytes, particularly sodium, and they're not replacing them. So if you're running an event that lasts more than six hours, particularly if it's in the heat, you must replace electrolytes. And often the concentrations of the electrolytes in a lot of commercially available products are not high enough. And um, this is something that's got to be planned in advance because inevitably on race day, regardless of how well you've trained and how well you've periodized and, and how much of a strategy you, you have in place, it's very rarely do, 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 are people able to follow that strategy verbatim. You know, it, it's something that is going to change on the fly based on your gastrointestinal distress, the environmental conditions, how you feel, how you respond on the day, the food available at, at checkpoints and so forth. So there's got to be some flexibility in there. You're not going to stick to your strategy exactly. So there's got to be some contingencies in there because, okay, you might get a little bit less carbohydrate here. You might get a little bit more fat here, but you can't really afford to allow your fluid intake and your electrolyte intake to suffer. You've got to do everything in your power to make sure that you're meeting your demands because as you quite rightly said, you know, if you, if you take in a few, uh, you know, slightly, fewer calories one hour then that's fine or your protein intake you don't quite hit it you get you know a couple of grams less protein here and there it's it might your performance might suffer it might not be optimal but if if you're not meeting your hydration demands and if you're not getting enough electrolytes this is a very clear health concern and the implications of that are much greater also as you're saying that um again just to hark back to some additional benefits of consuming carbohydrates in the diet um does extend also potentially to hydration and storage in the body is there anything there that you feel is worth mentioning well sure we know that for probably every gram of carbohydrate that you store you're retaining two fluid as well and some commercially available sports drinks kind of facilitate the uptake of glucose and, and actually better actually result in better hydration than, than water alone. A lot of carbohydrate-based drinks as well contain electrolytes and things like trisodium citrate to help with glucose absorption across the intestine. So that the main transporter for glucose across the intestine is SGLT1, which is sodium-dependent glucose transporter 1. It is dependent on the availability of sodium. So actually, if we add sodium to, to these drinks, it's going to facilitate the uptake of glucose and water across the intestine, the intestinal border. So you're absolutely right. Actually, in, in many cases, meeting your carbohydrate demands and your fluid demands and your sodium electrolyte demands can, can be met. You're, you're killing three birds with one stone effectively. 
No, that's brilliant. And look, there's a, there's more to this, which is in the paper, obviously. We just haven't got enough time to to get into all of it. Um, but I just wanted to, to raise that because I think, it, you know, we were talking about that other topic. Um, but as it relates to the intake of, of food and, and fluids and so on, and you've mentioned this multiple times now, that, that there is this risk, which is a very common one, of gastrointestinal distress. And I have talked about this in one way or the other with Asker Yukendrup and Ricardo Costa about, you know, training the gut, gut training and various other things. But this is something that has, you know, that is in the paper. And I think that we should, we should get into, there is continuing emerging levels of evidence on this topic, um, but it's still very new. Um, but, but where we're at with what we know, but also because we're trying to be very practical about this, it's a consensus statement. It's not, you know, it's not a, um, a specific sort of primary bit of research. What, 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 what do we know about this topic and what is relevant to ultramarathon um, that you want to talk about? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And, and the, you, know, you can drew up and, and the cost of that, they're kind of the real experts on the GI stuff, particularly in ultra endurance exercise. And my colleague, Justin Roberts, is, is kind of doing more, more yeah. research now in terms of the, the, the GI upset and you mentioned probiotics earlier as well. Um, I, th I think it's... I still think it's relatively underappreciated in ultra marathon. There's lots of papers on the prevalence of gastrointestinal upset. And the estimates are, depending on which paper you look at, it could be 40% of runners up to 90% of runners. But from what I've seen, it's, it can be debilitating. And it's not just a case of feeling a bit sick and you know having to adjust your nutrition strategy. If your gut shuts down and you can't eat or drink, you are done. That is it. There is no there is no coming back <laughs> from that often. And so it is a real challenge. And again, I mentioned earlier when I was uh, in Chamonix working with some of the athletes doing UTMB, and we we did baseline measures on some of these guys and girls. We we We've got a sample of about 30 and some of the best athletes, some of the strongest individuals who were a little, you know, who were younger, who were stronger, who were built to perform very, very well, perhaps even podium crashed out very, very early on because of GI upset. There was not one runner who came back to us for their post-race measures who did not experience some degree of, of gastrointestinal upset and actually to meet a runner in that kind of event who had only minor problems is very very rare yeah. most of them have very very severe problems so we've got to do more research on perhaps gut training on strategies on the fly to help mitigate the negative implications of gi upset and i think educating athletes as well not just on helping them to understand what the best strategy is for them their individual strategy because everyone is different, but also how to adjust their racing strategy on the fly to be able to tolerate the inevitable GI upset. So whether that is changing the type of foods and fluids they're eating during the race, whether it's changing or, or, or reducing their running speed periodically so that it's congruent with their GI upset, uh, you know, there are lots of there are lots of ideas, but I think that 
we've got to do more work to educate the athletes on potentially going to be coming these problems because they are going to occur sooner or later. Yeah, and I guess, that, I mean, this is an area that I work quite a lot with my athletes on. It's pretty technical. It's not an easy one. So um, if this is an area that you are you really do particularly suffer with, then it's an area where you really do need to get some expertise. But one way or the other, you do need to be looking into this because as you've made it very clear, it is a reality that, um, that these athletes are going to go through. All right. So again, there's more about this in the paper. Um, where despite the length of this podcast, we're, sit, we're, we're, we're it's just a snip of the stuff that's been um, attacked in the paper. So let's just quickly talk then, because um, we're, we're pretty close to running out of time here. This in itself is going to be the marathon of podcasts. So uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, um, so, so as long as you can still hang on here for just a little bit longer, Nick. Um, sure. Um, probably it's poignant then that we talk about the very thing I wouldn't mind having some right now is some caffeine. Mm. Caffeine is, is a brilliant thing. Um, you know, it's, I've used it in my rugby players. I've used it. Uh, it was an important thing for me at the World Cup with, with, with my uh, football players last year. Um, you know, and so too in in um, in endurance events. And and if there's one thing you're you're not going to struggle to find some evidence for, it's going to be caffeine. So, so you obviously looked at this uh, in putting this paper together. But you know, I don't think we need to describe caffeine as such. I think I've done podcasts on it and so on. But but why why is caffeine of interest to the ultra marathon? Um, athlete and the practitioners that are supporting them and, and, and then and then what you know what, what does the evidence say and what should we take from that well I guess that, that it's problematic because there is little to no, no evidence or little to no research specifically in this context yeah yeah specifically in this context caffeine supplementation ultra insurance happens there are some studies that have characterized the caffeine intakes of athletes and we so we can get an idea of at least an empirical basis of what athletes are doing generally, but that doesn't give us any indication as to whether that's correct or, or optimal in any way. So, so kind of a quick caveat before we start. I think it, caffeine can be very, very effective. We know that it has kind of two main mechanisms. One is stimulant properties affecting adenosine receptors in the brain, and another one that, that acts more locally at the muscle I think for ultra endurance athletes or ultra marathon runners specifically, it's the stimulant properties that are more interesting. I, I mentioned this earlier on, this idea that when you're running a race that, that lasts for 24 hours, actually sleep deprivation becomes a, a major factor here. And again, UTMB lasted for 48, 48 hours or so. Some of the big 100 milers, yeah, can last for an equally long time. It's a long time to be awake. And not only can that affect athletes' safety, particularly on technical terrain, because you start making mistakes, if you're required to navigate in some of these races, particularly in extreme environments, there's a much greater chance you're going to get lost or make a navigational error if you are sleep deprived and your cognitive function is suffering. And it's also just miserable when, when you're, you're trying to run, but you're falling asleep and you're, you're lethargic. And there's all these famous stories of people hallucinating during ultramarathon. And it's not so much that they've been running for a long time that they are that they haven't slept, you know, for a couple of days. You know, you'll, you'll know this when you 
and you're writing up your PhD, I certainly know I, there were several days when I didn't sleep when I was working back to back and it was a similar kind of, kind of experience. It's, a, it's an ultra marathon of a different type. So it's the stimulant properties of caffeine that, that, that are going to be important for an ultra marathon runner. I guess the problem is that we, it, it, the response is so individual. So as I mentioned, some people are going to be hypersensitive to caffeine and are going to get these, these great responses with a relatively small bolus. Other people can tolerate much higher concentrations. So I guess the key is figuring out where on that spectrum you are, where you sit and what you can tolerate. What you absolutely cannot do is start taking caffeine supplements for the first time during a race. Because not only is it, could you could you compromise your race, but you might put yourself in harm's way as well. Because it's very, you know, it's very easy to overdose on caffeine. And don't forget that caffeine used to be a banned substance. It used to be banned by the World Antidoping Agency for that very reason, because high concentrations of caffeine in the blood can be very dangerous to human health. So we've got to, we've got to practice these strategies tentatively. Ideally, get the advice of a nutrition professional who can advise you on the process. But, um, but, it, it's, but it, from what we know, the little that we know on this area, it's likely that taking caffeine supplement during nighttime running, so during the night stages of races, is going to be uh, preferred and in the latter stages of races. So if you're doing a long duration race that's 12 hours or more, take caffeine towards the end of the race rather than just taking it right from the beginning where you're less likely to benefit from, uh, from supplementation. Yeah, no, again, that's a very practical take home that I think that's important here. And yeah, I mean, you know, you've made it clear. I, I love when people write papers, we use words like there's a paucity of data positive evidence support the day but there is true there's just not much not much there i mean of course people will talk about the value of caffeine potentially as a stimulant in shorter training sessions it might help with uh, fat oxidation and so on but it's not particularly significant in the bigger picture but what they don't talk about is what you did talk about and certainly my athletes mentioned that that it's been a bit of a a game changer and a lifesaver to them is to have the ability to have that stimulant when as you say, they're starting to fall asleep, you know, after 10, 12, 15, 20, 30 hours of running. It's hard to imagine, um, but it is so, so it's critical. And also, and also it's, it's not just the terrain, you know, quite often you might be running in the middle of the night um, and, and sure. trying to make decisions, uh, not just seeing where your feet are falling, but like you say, you've got to navigate, you know, and as I said at the beginning, that you know, ultra ultra endurance is, is not just a physical thing. It, you know, there's a strategy here that requires quite a lot. So caffeine will certainly be an, an important tool in the toolbox potentially. Um, so there's a lot of other tools in the toolbox. Um, but I, you know, I, we're not going to talk about them all because quite frankly, they're not particularly relevant. They're in the paper. Um, and we've said they're not that useful, but there's a few things there that people are still talking about medium chain triglycerides, MCTs. Um, um, again, we could have talked about multiple transporter carbohydrates uh, as another potential supplement. Uh, but MCTs, uh, still, I still see people using those. And of course, the, um, with the rise of the popularity of the ketogenic diet, you've got the ketone ester supplements, which I've already 
said that may not be the same thing as a ketogenic diet. I mean, where, you know, where are we at with the evidence for that? And again, you know, the practical take home from that is, you know, you can, but, but should you? And what is your answer to that? Well, yeah, I'm not an expert in MCTs. I've looked at some of the research with regards to endurance exercise. And if you look at the kind of scientific consensus, MCTs generally don't help to improve performance in, in endurance type exercise. Particularly, you know, MCT supplementation, it was, it was a big thing in the, the late 90s, early 2000s. But, but actually, um, if you ask most nutrition professionals, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you the same thing. It's not something that ultra-endurance athletes tend to dabble with, other than, you know, the, the ketogenic diet is a, is, a, is a trendy thing. And that's much more uh, contemporary. But in terms of MC, MCT supplements, it's not something that you see athletes using a lot of. It is associated with, with a degree of GI upset. And the concentrations of MCT supplements that have been shown to exert an ergogenic effect, so performance enhancing effect, are most likely to cause the, the GI distress. So there's kind of, yeah, it's a, it's a catch-22 type scenario. Uh, but uh, yeah, just, uh, an area where I have seen it though is, is not specifically as an MCT supplement, but it is um, in the form of bulletproof coffee. Okay. Um, if you know uh, where they're, 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 they're sticking a whole slab of this stuff um into into their coffee and trying to get a double whammy um anyway i've got a, i've got a whole nother podcast about that and actually i've talked to Asker you can who started the whole mct thing off anyway and he uh his conclusion nowadays is exactly what you just said you know at this point that's just not relevant particularly for ultra endurance um athletes um and as you say you know that's not really it's not it's, it, it, we've discussed it but it's not really it's not really something we're gonna need to worry about but ketone esters is so tell us about ketone esters and what they are, what they're, um, um, well, they're, I mean, essentially ketone esters are in the, uh, we've written about this in the paper and it's something that is an exogenous source of ketones um, that is largely there as another opportunity as a fueling strategy, but the evidence there is still, still pretty mixed. Um, so I think we'll, I mean, we can move over that actually because there's quite a lot in the paper that we've got to get to. I guess that it's just, I, I just, just to very briefly touch on that. Yeah. I think, uh, I think we alluded to this earlier is that for some people it absolutely works and that mm. there are a lot of anecdotes on this and there are some rodent models showing that ketogenic diet can be very effective. And there is some stuff now emerging in, in human population as well, but there's just nothing specific to ultra endurance. And yeah. this is the problem that we have and that we, really got to be careful recommending these types of diets to ultra endurance athletes when we just don't have the evidence that the, the kind of the longitudinal studies to show that it's effective in, in these types of athletes so that that's where we've got to be careful yeah no absolutely absolutely agree so it's not that they might not have some sort of an impact we just don't have the evidence yet to support that which is the whole point sure. of the consensus paper yeah exactly so um you know, glutamine is uh, goes in and out of vogue um, in the research. I've seen some new stuff, like in rugby players, even you know, and how glutamine plays a role in supporting um, the integrity of the gut. Um, there's some interesting areas there, and you know, we are talking about the risk of um, gut damage. 
um, also the impact on the immune system and so on, which is where you could hypothesize a role for glutamine. I mean, what, what do you think about glutamine? <laughs> yeah, and this is kind of one of the most widely researched amino acids of, you know, past several decades. And you're absolutely right. There's, there are implications there uh, for gut health, immune function, and uh, some of the early stuff on muscle, muscle protein synthesis as well. I guess this is a great opportunity to to perhaps increase the intake of amino acids and especially branch chain amino acids in ultra endurance athletes. We, we talked about the problems that these guys and girls have in, in achieving their protein intake. And often they are at the, as I've said, they're at the mercy of race organizers to provide adequate amounts of protein. One of the things that we mentioned in the paper is that athletes could potentially meet their protein demands at the same time as getting in key nutrients like glutamine, like leucine, for example, as well. There's, there's lots of emerging research on leucine as, as having a really important role, as perhaps even the, the most prominent role in muscle protein synthesis. And actually, it, it could be a case of taking amino acid supplements during racing, not only because then you can, you can get your glutamine, you can get your leucine, but also you can it, you can use that to help you meet your protein demands. You know, yes, ideally we'd be eating chicken breasts and and uh, beef steaks and so forth during racing, but it's not really uh, it's not logistically feasible. But actually, taking amino acid supplements is, especially in tablet form, is is that, be, that can be quite simply done. Yeah, and that might be a good opportunity to, uh, as you say, try and hit some of these key amino acids. Uh, which have been shown to yeah, help, help to mitigate proteolysis during exercise, improve gut health, uh, offset uh, Im immune deficits as well. So, yeah, that, that could be one, one avenue of uh, consideration. Yeah, and you know, again, the, 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 there is actually been an, in as far as I'm aware, there's definitely an increase in interest in this. and when that evidence becomes available, I guess we'll be talking about that in, in the future. And, and, and again, I think it's worth pointing out that a lot of these consensus statements, they do tend to get revised at some point when, when there's more of that information. So we'll see, we'll see what the future has to hold on that, but um, there are bigger issues at hand. Um, I already talked about the consequences of, um, you know, all that training and all that energy expenditure and the stresses that has on the body and the risks of things like relative energy deficiency. So there is a, you know, there's a, there's a potentially justified argument for supplementing the diet one way or the other. And of course at the sort of at the foundation of that would be sort of the, the traditional supplement, which is vitamins and minerals. Um, we know that they don't, help you know in terms of performance per se but there might be some sort of value to them in the context that i've just mentioned uh, in offsetting some of those sort of more chronic dietary related issues is there anything else though that that the evidence suggests as it relates to vitamins and minerals and, and are there any practical aspects to that that you feel are worth mentioning yeah well a lot of ultra marathon runners do supplement with multivitamins and often specifically vitamin C as well. And there, are, there are some observational studies characterizing 
quite high percentages of ultra marathon runners will, will use vitamin mineral supplements. I think in the, in the broader context, supplementing with vitamins and mineral, minerals isn't an effective means of improving long-term health. It, it's, they're just not necessary particularly if you have a well-balanced diet that meets all of your, by definition, if you're meeting your nutritional demands through your diet, then you shouldn't need multivitamin. Where it does become interesting is when you look at the prevalence of, for example, upper respiratory tract infection. So it, it is very common following ultramarathon in the days and weeks following a particularly arduous event for URTI to manifest. So this is when an individual gets kind of a sore throat or runny nose or a cough and some very kind of, um, I guess, I guess superficial, mo moderate flu type symptoms. And there are some good studies now showing that if you supplement with vitamin C, for example, before and after the race in the, in the weeks following that, you can actually help to mitigate the prevalence of upper respiratory tract infection. The, the, it's the old kind of Neiman J-shaped curve. If, we, if, if you participate in moderate levels of physical activity, you have a slightly um, immunoprotective effect. If you then start to, if, if you do no exercise at all, or if you're participating in extreme endurance exercise and your risk of upper, upper respiratory tract infection, then substantially increases. So it may be that uh, short-term supplementation with certain uh, vitamins and minerals might help to mitigate that, certainly. But but there, there needs to be more research in that. There is almost uh, there is almost nothing looking at supplementing with micronutrients during racing. There's a little bit, you know, before before and after, but there's not enough on on how this might affect immune function following the race if you actually supplement with with uh, micronutrients during the event. So maybe that's kind of the where the research will go from here. Yeah, no, well, look, these are all good points. And, you know, there's only so much that we can get into in this podcast. In fact, I can officially say that this is the longest <laughs> podcast I've ever done. Excellent. And it's, it's, it's have it any other way. most interested in this topic are going to need to have something to listen to for their <laughs> multi hour runs. And here we have provided just that for, for them. Um, look, I, you know, there's so much here. There's so much more in the paper um so number one you, you there's no way you can compensate you know by uh, for, for the paper just by reading this this the, sorry listening to this podcast so number one the listeners have to to read that paper there's so much in there there's lots of stuff we didn't go into uh, as much detail pre during and post uh, competition for example and training and so on uh, just because we just don't have the time but i think that we covered the sort of the the bigger areas and all the gaps that I just wanted to cast a bit more light onto. Um, as I like to do with this, I mean, if you, it's, it's not possible to do a tweetable summary, especially on such a beast of a topic, but do you have any sort of closing comments you feel that you might want to, might want to say um, about this topic and all this, this paper? Well, I suppose the first thing, yeah, just a couple of quick things. Hmm. I don't think it's necessary to read the whole paper. It was written in a way that each section can work as a standalone, you know? So I think 
rather, you know, it can be quite daunting. It's a 25 or whatever page, page article. So don't worry about reading it from beginning to end unless you are inclined to do so. But you can pick up on, on the, the relevant sections. They, they do stand alone. So pick out what works, what, what's most relevant to you. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is just that uh, we, we, need, we need more research in this area. We, we were very clear in the paper when there was strong or weak evidence to support particular statements. We, we, we graded our, our evidence statements at the start, A, B, C, or D. A would, would be very, very strong if there were you know, meta-analyses or lots of randomized controlled trials and all the way down to, to D where we're talking about you know, individual case studies and things. So we were very clear when there was insufficient evidence to make, you know, a, a strong recommendation. I guess it's just a, a call to, to to researchers who are interested in this area to to not shy away from from doing good, solid research. You know, there's some great stuff being done, and more and more uh, is coming out all the time. But I think don't be afraid to you know take some invasive measures. Don't be afraid to transport if you can transport some of your nice expensive kit out into the field um, at a risk of getting damaged because this is how we get the really good data you know we, we've um, there, there's got to be more of a drive to do that yes the case studies are very interesting and yes the superficial measures give us an insight into um, you know some aspects of function but if we're really going to start to understand this, this topic and there's a lot we still don't understand there's got to be a greater drive to, to do some slightly more mechanistic invasive research because that's when we're going to really understand what's going on and just uh, just keep talking keep keep communicating and um hopefully we can, we can try and crack this black box a little bit well look nick thank you so much for your time uh it's been a long one for many in many ways it's you know uh, huge amounts of effort you know you and the team put into putting that paper together you know, I think as someone who works with ultra endurance athletes, um, it's been a pleasure to read it um, and discuss it uh, through with you. Um, and um, there will be many opportunities for people to engage with that paper, like you say, section by section, and use it as a resource and a tool for their for their for their toolbox. Um, and of course, there are little areas that you know I've I've mentioned in our discussion here that I've done podcast with numerous other experts like recently you know protein endurance athletes and more nutrition altitude training with Trent Stanningworth uh, just to name two there's there's been loads of relevant ones there but if people are wanting to look a little bit more in your own work in this area and related areas how do they find out more about about you in that regard I know you've just changed institutions you said that at the beginning um, you're out there on like ResearchGate, Google Scholar, PubMed, that sort of thing, obviously. But but where, where where's the best way to find you? Yeah, so all of those platforms are relevant. Uh, ResearchGate, PubMed, Google Scholar. You can you can see my work there, and I've got this emerging research profile now in ultra endurance uh, sport. And I'm particularly interested as you know as deep and as active as my interest is in in sports nutrition. Um, I'm doing more work in the kind of cardiopulmonary area now as well. And, and we've got a, a, f a bunch of studies in the pipeline uh, looking at some, some really interesting uh, physical and, and 
physiological impact and physiological responses to ultra endurance exercise. So watch this space, and you can reach out to me on Twitter as well at nbtiller, and uh, and I tweet on all sorts of things to do with science and ultra endurance and um, you know, random stuff like that. Yeah, well, I'll I'll link into that, and and you know we we must have another, albeit shorter, conversation for this <laughs> podcast about that because I believe strongly that um for performance nutritionists in particular and researchers involved in that they need to understand far more than just sports nutrition they need to understand the demands of their athletes and you know get insights as to the sort of stuff they're trying to help and support and manipulate so um i'll look forward to that chat on another time well look thank you uh nick it's been awesome um welcome I, uh, of course, am Lauren Barrack, and um, we're very proud of this podcast at the Institute of Performance Nutrition and all the other things that we do in our mission to train and develop uh, current and aspiring performance nutritionists for our education programs and outputs. So please go to theiopn.com for more information about that. Um, so at this point, I will sign off from this ultra podcast to say thank you all for listening. Thank you this last time, Nick, for taking part. Um, I just I want to say th thanks, to, thanks to you, Lauren. It's been a fascinating talk, and uh, you know, thanks for having me. And uh, you know, you're doing some great work. And I think this, the science outreach, the, the science communication aspect, is something that's really underappreciated. So, thank um, you. So, so keep up the great work. I appreciate that so much. Thank you so much.